Nehemiah chapter 1. Lord willing, over the next few months, I hope to, by God's grace, uh, look at this book with you as much as we can. This is a book uh, loved by many, rightly so. A book that speaks of rebuilding what has been damaged by sin. A book that speaks of facing challenges by depending upon God. A book that speaks of a great leader of God's people, Nehemiah. A book that we might look to when we think of leadership skills and as you've been looking at this morning with your pastor of the issue of electing of elders. Very much what is also looked at here is times of crisis and that brings challenges to leadership But it's not just a book about leadership, this book of Nehemiah that we're going to look at. It's very much a book about a great work for those dependent upon God. A book that shows that true leadership, true godliness, true progress is when we are too dependent on God. Our text that we're going to look at and read here takes place after many of the Jews had returned from exile in Babylon. Nearly 100 years have passed since the decree of Cyrus, king of Persia. 13 years have passed since the time of Ezra, the great reformer. And now we're going to look at a big question for Nehemiah, the cup bearer of the king Artaxerxes of that day. Were things going well for God's people in Judah? And Nehemiah was eager to find out. So let us, let us read now God's holy and infallible word, Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the words that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants, who delight to fear your name and to give and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king, and may the Lord bless the reading of his word. We'll come now before the throne of grace once again as we call upon our God in heaven. Let us pray. Almighty Father, our great King of kings and Lord of lords, Father, as we look at your precious, holy, and infallible word, we see, O Lord, your servant, Nehemiah, in great distress, dear Father, in a time of crisis. Father, no doubt we face our own difficulties and trials. And Father, we pray, O Lord, that those who are here, those who are going through trial, those who are going through difficulty, Perhaps they have received bad news, news that has left them devastated. We pray, O Lord, that they would follow, that we would all follow in the great example that has been laid here by Nehemiah, coming before you, depending upon you. Father, that you could use him to lead your people in repairing the walls of Jerusalem. And Father... Anything that we do completely depends upon you. And we pray that you would help us this evening. Help us to see wonderful things from your word. And please, O Lord, we pray that you would apply healing balm to our souls. As we journey, O Lord, toward our heavenly home in Jerusalem. That Jerusalem which cannot be tarnished, O Lord, by sin. That Jerusalem, which which we look forward to, enjoying that perfect presence and fellowship with you, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Be with us, O Lord, we pray. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Our preaching for this evening is on that text in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. Hearing bad news is never easy. Sometimes we do not process the information when it comes to us. When you hear of the death of a loved one unexpectedly, how do we feel when we, when we receive that phone call from the hospital? When someone is seriously sick, it can leave us numb, it can leave us without energy, and it can leave us even without the desire to go forward in the first place. Or perhaps when we hear unexpected tragic news, we can get angry and frustrated and impatient 
that things are not going as we expect them to go. We're often never fully ready for bad news when it comes. And it often hits us unexpectedly. This news we are discussing here in this text, and which Nehemiah is responding to, is not something trivial. He's not asking about the weather or how things are going in a football match or anything else like that. He has received terrible news. Something that devastates him. He's hoping for something far greater than this. And if we think back to the end of the book of Ezekiel, if we think back to the great promises of the Davidic king prophesied for centuries before this, this is what Nehemiah thinks and is looking forward to. And so this news, this news that God's people are in trouble, they face reproach and distress, leaves him rocked to the core. And this kind of news, it hurts. It hurts deeply. But how do we respond? How do we respond to devastating news? How do we get the strength to get through? To keep putting one foot in front of the next. I also want to point this out as we look at this here this evening. As Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, with the hope of glory to come, these times of crisis are really moments of opportunity to depend upon our God more fully. And this, dear friends, is what we see from Nehemiah. A servant of God. A man of great political influence, the cup-bearer of the king. Here is his opportunity in hearing this devastating news, hearing of the great trouble that God's people are in. Here we see great leadership. Here we see what it looks like. Great leadership, and there's a great desire to pray before God as he leads so the man prays I want us to look this evening at this prayer of Nehemiah this prayer in a time of crisis so that when we too dear friends face our own times of crisis and they come they come we do not wish them to come but they do come that we would follow this godly example of Nehemiah. The first point we're going to look at from this text here this evening is the purpose of this prayer. The purpose of this prayer. Why was this prayer, this prayer from Nehemiah prayed in the first place? We look at verses 1 to 3, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Han and I, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, 
the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with with fire. Uh, This section gives us the devastating news he has received. It also gives us the background to who Nehemiah was and where he was in the world and what his influence was in this time in history. We also know from the end of this chapter that he was the king's cupbearer at the end of verse 11, for I was the king's cupbearer. Dwelling there in what was at the time the winter royal palace or fortress. It could also be translated the word citadel there. Fortress in Susa or Shushan. This is a great city of that day. It's a a city that archaeologists still study and look into. And he was there in this great city with the role of being a cupbearer in the royal house. And this was not just simply being somebody's butler or providing him drinks or anything else like that. This was a very influential position. You could even say he was kind of like a type of prime minister. He had the confidence in the ear of the king. He was the king's poison checker, that they would make sure that nothing harmful ever got to the king in the first place. And this was a very important role in the ancient world. But what does Nehemiah do with this power? He's great power, great influence, probably great, great uh, comfort in his life. The temptation, no doubt, would be to what? When we're in great temptation, we're, we're living in nice houses, we're living in nice accommodation, other things like that, we can perhaps live in a, a bubble, detached maybe from the hardship and the struggles of those who are God's people. But this is not Nehemiah. As he asked concerning the people of God, he could be almost saying, how is it going? Is there news of the people from Judah? How are they going? As he says... The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are in great distress. He finds out this information because he asks of how they're doing. How is it going? Is everything going well? Nehemiah clearly cared about the people. He cared about them. These people who had, we must remember, this is some 96 years after Cyrus, king of Persia, in 538 BC, sent the first group back. Another group of people went back 13 years before this. And he's asking, how is it going? After all this time, how are things going in Judah? This prayer is only possible, dear friends, because he cared. Without this care, without this concern, what was poured out in that prayer would not be possible. Was it going well? Not at all. In many ways, perhaps it could not be going any worse. That great love and concern is shown in his reaction in verse 4. In verse 4 it says this, So it was when I heard these words 
that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. He sat down and he wept. His reaction is something of devastation. He cannot even, it seems like from the text, he can't even, even continue to stand up. He collapses and he begins to cry. The grief overcomes him. This is the purpose and the reason for this prayer. It is a time of crisis. It is a time to pray, dear friends. It's not a time to worry. It's a time to pray. It was a time of mourning. But to cry out to our God. Again, we will all face these times. The question is, what do we do when these, when these times come? When we, we're devastated, when something has rocked us to our core? Does it drive us to sin? And that can happen, can't it, dear friends? There's times when bad news comes and we get angry. There's a sense in which we are going, why would God do this to me? We must not think like that. Or will it drive us to our prayer closet as it ought to? Will it drive us to our knees? We know, don't we, that when we get bad news, it can drive us away from God. Sometimes we're not like Nehemiah here. Sometimes we don't do what he's doing here. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He mourned for days. Devastated. Now, now fasting is something that is largely forgotten today, isn't it? Fasting is almost something going... Well, that was for that day and not for today. It has often been abused and done perhaps in a way that has been to show off and to show how religious you are. That is not the purpose of it at all. But fasting is very suitable for such times. I cannot prescribe a set amount of hours to fast or things like that in terms of crisis, but it is very suitable for times of crisis. In Matthew 9, 14 and 15, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. They're saying, well, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. There is a sense in which this is for times of great trial. It is there, dear friends, not an end of itself, but to aid in our prayer before God. To remove the distractions, to remove any sense of our own strength. If you don't eat for a long time, you feel pretty weak. You see yourself, you see more of your creaturely weakness before God. It's more easier to tremble when your belly is not full. I think there's lots of things like this that helps us in our prayer before God, just like Nehemiah did. And it's things like this, dear friends, that make this prayer 
possible. Number two now, the praise of this prayer, the praise of this prayer. Verse five, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. O great and awesome God. To come into the presence of any ruler, even of this earth, requires a certain degree of respect. I think we would all agree with that. Even your boss at work deserves a certain degree of respect. And this is something we struggle with today, isn't it? In our modern world, the idea of respecting those in authority. Acknowledging that position of authority. Now, we're not to do it in an, in an idolatrous sense in any way, shape, or form. But we give respect to the great power and the role of the ruler. How much more respect and awe should we have for God? If you give such respect and at times admiration for the ruler who rules well, how much more for God? Especially when we come into his presence. When we come into the presence of God, it must be in a sense of reverence and awe. And dear friends, as I look at this text, it is convicting personally for me when I read this because I often struggle. I, I, I too, as we all do, struggle to be in awe when we're alone, don't we? When we're alone before God. We don't have that sense of majesty and awe of which he is. The greatness of who he is. We come as I do sometimes sinfully, I say this, casually before God. I can be sleepy and often struggle to see in prayer that have come into the presence of true greatness. Nehemiah here with this prayer and this situation faced, he does see that he is in the presence of greatness. Have you ever seen those, those people, they meet their, their favorite uh, celebrity or their favorite singer, they're trembling, they're crying perhaps even, and they say, I'm in the presence of greatness. This is in the presence of true greatness when we pray before God. He, he, pray, he begins this prayer with praises. Oh, great and awesome God. And that, that word awesome, sadly, has been so misused in our modern culture, hasn't it? The word in older translations was translated terrible, terrible, in the sense of fearful. That means to be in awe that we would tremble before him. And we struggle with this as we know God loves us in Christ, but yet we see him at the same time as fearful. Both of these things are true. Without this fear, we do not love him. There is, at the same time, two truths. There's the truth that we are a mere creature and he is the creator of heaven and earth. There is a huge gap. And yet there's also no gap because of Christ and what he has done. And we need to have the sense of awe and majesty when we come before him, realizing who he is, realizing the great power, so that when we're coming before him, we're, we're almost like we're climbing Mount Zion. 
trembling because of the greatness of his power and majesty. So we ought to start our prayers with praise. Praise, dear friends, as Nehemiah does here, for who he is. And, dear friends, for what he has done. Jesus, when he gave the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, said this in Matthew 6, 9. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Or, in another way, you could say, your name, your reputation is holy. Your reputation is without spot, is without spot. It is perfect. We begin with praise. So that we come in a spirit of worship. We have looked at who he is. Great and awesome. But what has he done? What has he done? It says here in verse 5, You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. We love God for who he is and that alone, but we also love him for what he has done, for what he does. You keep your covenant. This is why we can ask in the first place. This is why there is a throne of grace. This is why there is the mercy seat. This is why there is this merciful covenant because what of what he has done, what Christ has done. And without that covenant, dear friends, without this mercy, this steadfast love, his chesed, we have no hope. We cannot come before the throne of grace. So we praise him for these things, acknowledging who he is. For dear friends, prayer is an act of worship. Number three now, we're going to look at the pleading of this prayer. The pleading of this prayer. So we've looked at the purpose, the praise, and now we're going to look at the pleading of this prayer. Because we, we come in such a manner. We come in praise, we come in adoration, we come in worship. We do not come casually. Verses 6 And seven, please let your ear be attentive. Please, there's pleading here. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. Verse, verse 6 once again. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. There is a pleading with God. Some nearly 100 years after the first group had returned from exile. They are in great distress, and this leaves God's servant here, Nehemiah, to be in great distress, pleading, crying out to God. Please hear me, O God. And seeing the greatness of the God of heaven, seeing what he can do and how we are dependent upon him. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are the poor. This is not people with slightly less money than others. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are, you could even think, the beggars. The word in Greek translated poor is, has a sense of complete dependence upon another. One definition put it this way, poor in the world's goods, literally begging. Another definition says this, one dependent on others for support, poor, destitute, absolutely destitute before God. And you can imagine someone, the the sense of crying out, the, the pleading here is of someone, he hasn't had bread in days. Please. There's a, there's a desperation before God. He sees the helplessness of his people without God. He is pleading with God for help. And, and he's not just on an ivory tower, dear friends. He's not, look at what your people have done in Judah. We have sinned. Both my and our father's house have sinned. He identifies with his people much the same as Ezra did in the previous book of Ezra. He identifies as well with his people. You see the same thing in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel identifies with his people. Here can be the blessings of crisis, dear friends. Though we will not often see it at the time. But that when you do get bad news... That that despair is despair of yourself and your own helplessness. And you, it drives you to depend more upon God. It really opens your eyes. This despair, this seeing this, how destitute you are before God, helpless you are. He, he's in another land. He's far away from his people. Physically, he cannot help them. And he's desperate for God to help his people. And it is a blessing if it drives us to plead with this great and awesome God. This is why, dear friends, in Romans 8.28 it says this, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, not just the pleasant things, Not just the wonderful things, even the horrible things, even the things you wish would never happen, the things that keep you up at night, the things you wish you would never hear. But they all work together for good. All of them. And they're there by God's sovereign hand. So that you will cry out to him and plead with him for mercy. And it must be with a humble heart as it is with Nehemiah here. We must confess together that we have sinned against our God. And Nehemiah knows that there's a problem in the land. He's not pretending. He's a, we don't know what is the problem here. He knows exactly what the problem is. He knows that in Leviticus 26... There is blessings and cursings promised to God's people. Blessings if they follow, 
cursings if they don't. It says in Leviticus 26, verse 40, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, that I also have walked contrary to them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised heart are humbled and accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. This pleading, dear friends, it's not demanding that God does this off the top of our heads. It is pleading as lowly servants. He says in verse 5, You keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. We are your servants, dear Father in heaven. We, we come serving. No, we don't do it perfectly. But if we are his people, there will be the fruit of obedience. Not perfectly, but it will be there. This future great leader at the time, Nehemiah, he obeyed God. Not perfectly, but dear friends, we have a far greater leader in Jesus Christ who obeyed the law in our place. He pleads, Nehemiah pleads before the throne of grace. And he pleads based upon the promises of God. First, uh, number four now, we're going to look at the promise of this prayer. The promise of this prayer So we've looked at the purpose, the praise, the pleading, and the promise of this prayer, verses 8 and 9. Remember, I pray, Nehemiah says, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, Yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. And this pleading, dear friends, is based upon the promises of God. Remember, O Lord. As Christians, we know that God can do anything. We cry before him. He can do anything. Nothing restrains him. But there's also something he cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. He is faithful and good. And so he will keep his promises. He will keep his promises. There's no other possibility even possible. Nothing else is possible except... That God will do what he says he will do. So when we plead with our God in prayer, in helplessness, we come before the throne of grace with something certain and sure. And this is what Nehemiah does. He knows why his people are in such trouble because of their sin. The the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are burned with fire. The, The city of God is in trouble. And he comes before God, pleading, based upon the promises of God. Things that we know to be true. Things that God will answer. Because he cannot deny himself. Now, 
Sometimes we may feel silly reminding God of anything in prayer. Yes, God does not forget. Of course not. In fact, God cannot learn anything, for he knows everything. And if anything happens, it is because he has spoken it forth. It has been decreed by him. If it happens, it has been brought to pass by our sovereign king. He changes not. But yet there is a place for praying the promises of God as Nehemiah did. God uses means in bringing about his divine sovereign purpose. As Moses pleaded before God based upon the promises of God, Moses said this, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore, you promised you, you, you swore in an oath, you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants. And then in verse 14 of Exodus 32, so the Lord relented from the harm that he said he would do to his people. Moses, after the golden calf was made, pleads based upon the promises of God. God relents. So, dear friends, when we go out, we do so based upon the promises of God. When we, when we reach out to the lost, we, we, we ought to pray, should we not, that the Lord promised to multiply his seed. Will he not add many to this church based upon that promise? There are more of his people out there to be reached. That God would be victorious as he has promised to be over his enemies. Even placing death itself under his feet. He will save many more. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when, dear friends, earthly Jerusalem, the city of God, the church is in trouble. Or you could say on fire. Shall we not pray these promises? Shall we not remind ourselves that they cannot possibly fail? Our last point then we're briefly going to look at is the prosperity of this prayer. The prosperity of this prayer. Verse 11, O Lord, this is Nehemiah praying before God. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah prayed for the blessings of God. That God would prosper him. And what he wished to do. He prayed that God would prosper his way, sending him to help his people, giving Nehemiah favor before the king. The king at that time being Artaxerxes. Now we might get nervous with the word prosperity. I don't know if you get nervous about this word as well. There is a horrible doctrine taught in some professing churches called the prosperity gospel. It teaches of 
health, wealth, and happiness in this world. It promises earthly goods. It promises much of the same things that the devil promises in this world. This is not the prosperity that Nehemiah cries out for. He does not pray for this here, but he prays for the prosperity and peace that comes from the repentance spoken about in verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, that repentance, and the word translated prosper here has a sense of success or even victory, or things would turn out well. That prosperity is what we pray for. We ought to pray for what Nehemiah prayed for. The success and advancement, dear friends, of the kingdom of God. That in turning from sin to God, in greater enjoyment of fellowship with him, greater victories ahead as promised in the word of God, that is real prosperity. We may even... Be poorer financially, but have greater prosperity in the world to come. The wealth of this world, dear friends, will disappear. Your your homes, your, your bank balances, everything else, it will disappear. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. It will be a puff of smoke. It will disappear as quickly as it went away. But the wealth of the kingdom of God, the success and the victories and the prosperity of the kingdom of God, that great wealth that is forever, well, that will not ever tarnish and that will not ever fade away. Is this what we pray for in our prayers? That's our prosperity. Oh Lord, take, take it all from me. Take all the things that cling that I cling to and bring me closer to you. Let me not be like the rich young ruler who loved riches. Is this what we pray for? The advancement of the kingdom, no matter what it may cost us in this world. It may cost us promotion and work. It may cost us many things. It may cost us financially. It usually does. But is the aim of such a prayer, crying out to God, is it to build up the city of God, the church? Does it aim to repair what has been damaged and burnt and, and destroyed by rebellion, by covenant breaking? This is the reason they're in this situation. God's people are in this situation. Covenant breaking. It's the reason Nehemiah is in that land in captivity. His father's in rebellion against the commands of God. And Nehemiah knows this. Do we pray for return to God? For dear friends, God cannot deny himself. Nehemiah was at a low point of crisis, wasn't he? But this low point brought him closer to his king in heaven. It brought him to see more of God in his presence. Could 
Could we imagine such a prayer without this distress? Could we imagine such a prayer without this devastation? Dear friends, these are moments of opportunity. If you ever face them, face them in the throne room of grace. You have access. You have the way, the truth, and the life. The Lord Jesus Christ. This moment of crisis brought him to see more of God, to praise him. And it brought him victory to success, and we'll see that in future sermons. When times of crisis come, dear friends, come to Christ in prayer for the help, for the strength. You cannot do it alone. It is when we run away from prayer in times of crisis is when we run to sin. And we have two, we've got a fork in the road, don't we? When we face such trials, when we face such challenges. And it's especially important for those in leadership, isn't it? The devil would love to have you. And not even just those in eldership, those who people look up to and say, oh, I would love to be like that person in years to come. Cry out to him, dear friends. Cry out to him. Let him guide you in your time of great need and trial. But perhaps you are here this evening, but you may not be a Christian. That is your time of crisis that you must face. The wrath of God. The bad news is, if you are not in Christ, you are a sinner condemned to die under the death penalty. But, dear friends, the good news is, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have access to the throne of grace, and you have a home in heaven with him for all eternity. Amen.